What are we supposed to do in the 21st century with the miracle stories that pepper the Gospels? Do we say, well, they happened then, but they don't happen now? We don't really know why, but it could have something to do with the fact that we're less faithful or more hopeless, or there's something wrong with us that miracles happened. And now they don't. Or or do we suggest that they were somehow kind of flashy advertisements for the life of Jesus and they were only important to that end and had no other purpose? I don't know. I'm really not sure how we deal with them. How we deal with the fact that the Gospels tell us these things happened and they are miraculous so, in other words, by definition, they're not things that we can explain by normal, the normal way of living life. One way of looking at them is to understand a little bit about why they're in the Bible now. In other words, when people started to compose these stories well after the life of Jesus, and they wanted to tell something about this life, and they put these stories in, One way of looking at them is to think about them like we do the parables that Jesus told. In other words, we don't know so much about what the detail actually was at the time, but within them, they have a message that we can follow and use today. Now, that might not be the only way or even the best way of dealing with these miracle stories, but it is one way that they have a story to tell us. And it was one of the reasons why they're in those texts in the first place. All the things that happened to Jesus, they're not all in there. Three years of his teaching ministry, an entire life up until around the age of 30. It's not a whole life story. It's elements that were chosen by the writers. And so one way of thinking about them is to think about them as these kinds of teaching stories. You may be aware of the writing of a guy called Joseph Campbell. He became very famous in the 1970s because George Lucas, who wrote the Star Wars films, which changed filmmaking uh, for for two generations, he he used the writings of Joseph Campbell. And up until that point, Campbell had been well known in uh, academic circles and amongst people who were interested in mythology and myths right down through the ages, but nobody else. But Once Lucas started using him, everyone wanted to. And so for the last part of his long life, Campbell was very famous. And he wrote, his most important book that he wrote is called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And it encapsulates the idea of the hero's journey, which you may have heard of because of his then, you know, latter fame. It's the idea that um, many of the great stories of the world that go back through history, and he's explored them all the way back in, in Western culture, back to the Greek myths, the, the Homeric myths, um, uh, stories in the Bible, all of the great stories. And he came up with this idea that there's a kind of a pattern, and he calls it the hero's journey. And it begins in normal life with a call, what he calls the call to adventure. And you can see it in this story here because what we've got is a story of fishermen doing what fishermen do at the end of a night of fishing. They mostly fished at night for all kinds of complicated reasons, uh, as much to do with the problem of tax, uh, the tax that they had to pay in order to fish because, of course, everything was owned by Caesar. 
he owned the he owned the lake, and it was called the Lake of Tiberias, which is another name for the, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and so there was all kinds of reasons why they fished at night. But they were just doing a normal day. They were coming in, they were mending their nets in ready for the next night. So they were living their normal life. And Campbell says that all the great myth stories, um, and myths, remember, are not stories that are untrue. Um, John Dominic Crossan, the great scholar, said, a myth is not something that never happened. A myth is something that happens over and over and over again. It's a kind of iconic story in our life, in our world and in our culture. So normal life happens. And then out of normal life, something changes. But this normal life is not a good normal life because it turns out later that they didn't catch anything. And if you don't catch anything, what kind of a fisherman are you? And how are, what kind of a provider are you for your family and your clan? So not only was it normal life, but it was a dull, colourless normal life. Not unlike the lives of many of us in our culture. We know, now know that depression is, the, is now the, either the first or the second largest killer of people. It, it's very difficult to, to, to quantify because obviously if you ever die in a car accident, those things are cut and dried. But if depression is a killer, it's a silent killer and it's a slow killer. But the Mental Health Association of the United States has mapped this out and they think now it's probably the second or maybe even the worst killer of ordinary, normal people like you and I. It's a terrible disease and it's there everywhere. The, the American Medical Association defines depression as losing interest in important parts of life. Losing interest in important parts of life. Some of us suffer from depression our entire lives. Some of us suffer from depression from time to time. And if it continues... The medical profession tells us it's a killer. So not only are they in normal life, but it's not a good normal life because nothing's working out. And then there's this call, what, what, um, what Joseph Campbell calls the call to adventure. Jesus says, can I use your boat as a pulpit, essentially? Let's pull out from the shore, I'll sit in the boat and I will teach. And the text says at the beginning, they come to listen to the word of God. Now, John's Gospel, which comes a few years later than the Gospel we're just reading, Luke, decides not only, it's not so much what Jesus says that is the Word of God, but it's Jesus himself. He somehow embodies the Godness of God. And he himself is, the, is the, what he calls the Logos, the energy of God. So one way of reading the story is people come to hear and to experience and to be present with the energy of God. Something about Jesus is not so much what he said, but how he lived his whole life. It was congruent. What he says and what he did were congruent. A great way to live, a way we would all love to live, if the things we said and thought were important and the way we lived were linked together all the time. So Jesus steps in to Peter's, uh, to Simon, he's still called at this point, Simon's boat. You can see this as Jesus stepping into the life of this man, being a part of his life, being present in the very essence of what it means to be him. Because being a fisherman was not just his job, that's the way you lived. That was his whole way of living. And many of us still have names. 
connected to the jobs that our forebears did. Cooper is, a, is one. A shepherd is another one. There's all kinds of... Because who, what you did and who you were were so identified that you ended up with that as a name. So Jesus is stepping into the middle of this. And then the call to adventure gets even stronger because he literally says, put out into deep water. There's a call on this man's life to be to go deeper into what life really means. And he'd been sitting there next to Jesus. Jesus had been talking and he'd been absorbing something about what it meant to know God and to be close to God. And he's literally called to go deeper into it. That's the call to adventure. The call, the difference between hearing bits of the Bible, hearing a few prayers, singing a few hymns, turning up week after week, and opening ourselves up to the great mystery of what it means for me individually to be deeply connected to the divine, to be deeply imbued with the Spirit of God within me. That's the difference. It's a great adventure. Well, Campbell says the next thing that usually happens in the hero's journey, and it's a cycle because um, the hero goes, has an adventure, comes home, and then another adventure. That's the, the way our lives work. There's the, the idea of the refusal of the call. That's what Campbell calls it. And we get this with, with Simon. He almost seems to refuse Jesus. He says, Master, we've worked all night, but we've caught nothing. In other words, you know, I do know a thing or two about fishing. This is not a good time to go fishing. Um, you know, you're a carpenter, you've just blown in out of town. What do you know about fishing? I know, and we've tried it. And don't you meet people like that all the time? Don't you meet it in yourself? Well, I've tried that, it doesn't work. Can't do that anymore. Uh, that's never going to work. That, it's impossible, that's just the way the world is. There's nothing will change in my life. I, I had a conversation with somebody a week before last who, who we were dealing with something that was really a problem for them. I mean, it was hurting them in many different ways, uh, in, in their social life and in their interior life. And that person said to me, nothing I can do about it. That's just the kind of person I am. And I can't change. It's not true. It's not even true. We know that physically, the work that's been done on brain plasticity is now proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that it doesn't matter how old your brain is, and in how old a body it happens to be inhabiting, it can change physically. It, there are certain things that you can do that will physically change the way your brain operates. You can actually teach an old dog new tricks. You might have seen in the ABC News just this week, a 94-year-old man who got his PhD at the University, uh, Curtin University in WA. Was a 94-year-old man. It took him a while. It took him six years to do it part-time. He was busy doing other things as well. He actually I've got to read you this quote. He said, my, my wife remarked that at my age, getting a PhD at 94, it could be read in two ways. Either it suggests obsession or incompetence. That's a great quote. So it's not... You, his name's David Bottomley. You ask David Bottomley whether it's possible to grow and change. And he asked Curtin University, it must be, because they gave him a PhD. But Simon says, if you say so, I'll let down the nets. 
Simon says, but I know how the world is working. It's like this and it doesn't change. But I'm willing to give it a go. I'm willing to chance it. I'm willing to trust that it's possible that a change might be available to me. So he does what Campbell calls crossing the first threshold. He takes a step. They do as they're asked. And then this incredible thing happens. They get all these fish, an abundance of fish, more than their nets can handle. They call the other boat over and they haul it all in. What, it's what Campbell calls, uh, in his language of the hero's journey, the ultimate boon. It's the thing hardly to be expected which changes everything. The hero goes on a journey, receives the call, takes the risk of going forward, crosses over the first threshold, as Campbell puts it, and gets this extraordinary thing that changes their life. And nothing like a huge load of fish to change a fisherman's life. They get abundance. More than they can deal with. And that's at the heart of the story. Somehow the story is, is inviting us to step over the threshold, to engage with the ultimate meaning of the universe, to be present to God's spirit, whatever language we want to use, to be open up to the possibility. And what happens is we gain something beyond measure. And you hear this in story after story. If you read an autobiography of anyone with a spiritual experience, whether they're Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever, there will be this spot where they try to explain this experience that they've been having that is in a sense of abundant love and care. A sense of knowing that beyond reason and beyond their own ability, they are loved and they somehow belong in their life and in the world. Because you meet many people who somehow feel they don't belong in their life or in the world. They somehow feel alien in their own body. People who suffer from uh, bulimia, people who suffer from schizophrenia, people who suffer from disease where they, where they sense where they just don't quite fit. And then there's many people, of course, who feel like they don't fit in their community. Just, I just don't believe that I, I'm a part of something. I feel, I feel on the outside all the time. But there's this abundance experience of just generous, overwhelming love. And alongside it, according to Simon, is the experience of reality. That here's this overwhelming, extraordinary, but I don't love, but I don't deserve it. And it's not really for me. Because Simon Peter, now he's called, says, you're not going to have to leave me alone because I can't handle this. Step away from me. There's a sense where this is too glorious for someone like me. It's for other people. It can't be for me because, well, I know the truth about myself. And it's true. I know more about how useless and hopeless I am than you do. And some of you probably already think I'm pretty useless. And I, like I, but I, I know more than that. And that is a truth about me. But it's not the only truth about me. And while I'm very good at cataloguing all the things that are wrong with me and all the places where I'm not doing what I should and could do, I'm not doing any cataloguing about what a glorious person I really am. 
In fact, it even sounds weird to be saying that out aloud to you now. That I shouldn't be saying that. It can't be true. We're good at telling ourselves all the things that we haven't done and how useless we are. And Simon Peter does the same thing. But Jesus kind of brushes it aside. And he says what happens all the way through these texts and a lot in the Gospel of Luke. Right from the very beginning when angels turn up at the birth of Jesus. Don't be afraid. It's all right. Don't panic. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy tells us on its front cover. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. This is real. The experience of love and abundance, the overabundance of goodness, which is what's represented by the fish. Don't worry. It's okay. And then you get the sense where the, the hero's journey is only just beginning. Because Jesus says, you're still going to keep being fishermen, but you're going to fish for something different. Somehow the story is leaving us with normal life will still be normal life. If you woke up this morning two kilos overweight, chances are tomorrow morning, even though you experience the abundant love of the, of the universe in the experience of God, you'll still be two kilos overweight. So normal life will continue, but normal life won't be normal in the same way that it always was. Somehow the idea of being fishing for, for fish and then still, still being fishing, but fishing for people, encapsulates that whole thing, that there's this constant invitation all the time into a glorious world, opening ourselves up to the goodness of God, to the energy of the universe, and... Normal life will be normal and unnormal or abnormal at the same time. And the cycle will continue again. And the hero's journey will continue again as we forget and as we are open again to a new adventure, a new experience, a new invitation to abundance. Maybe the hero's journey is always just beginning.